0: Well, good morning. Let me add my welcome as well. My name is Eric Hoffman, the executive pastor here. And uh, I don't normally teach in the rotation that often, but uh, Rob is on a flight back from Israel. So it must be a rough life that Rob lives um, there. Um, so the text today, uh, we're, we're in triumphal entry in our calendar and Palm Sunday in our calendar, but we actually had to skip over two passages in our series in Mark to get here because we wanted it to line up with Holy Week. And so after Easter, we're going to come back and pick up those uh, those two texts. In case you're wondering if we just skipped over all of ten, we didn't. We're going to come back uh, come back to that after Easter. So uh, if we were to look at uh, the whole series of Mark, we were to look at Mark, what was Mark the, uh, the author of Mark? What was he trying to convey about Jesus? We could look at this steady stream of this, this line of thinking of what he's trying to answer. He's trying to answer this one question: Who is this man? So as he's presenting, as he's he's talking to us, and throughout the the scriptures, what he's he's communicating in his stories, he's trying to answer: Who is this man? And I believe that's what we have to come to in this passage as well. Jesus rides into Jerusalem, being hailed as a king, and they lay their coats before him, uh, shouting, "Hosanna!" He is the one who has come to save, the one who's come in the line of David. passage is clearly identifying Jesus as the man who is the promised Messiah, the king of kings, set apart. He is distinct and demands our worship. So if he is king, then that requires a response from us. So you are either for him or against him. It's going to be very clear that these are your two options. There is no third way with Jesus. Now, if you were growing up in the church, and maybe you're like me, and you you grew up, and you had Sunday school, and you went to Sunday school, and what would you do on Palm Sunday? Like, what was a typical lesson on Palm Sunday? Anybody? Come on. I know some of you know it. You'd go in there, right? And they'd hand out a palm branch. Like, you got your little palm branch. You'd come out to the car, and look, mom, what a guy got. And you'd whack your brother with it or whatever, you know? (laughs) But they would teach you, like, you would, you would sing a song with Hosanna in it, right? There's something about Hosanna, and then you'd have a palm branch, and they'd be like, you know, wave this around. I'm sorry, this is, like, the weakest palm branches ever. They're tied together, so don't ignore these. But, like, you would wave these around, you'd say Hosanna in the highest, you'd say something like that, and you'd, like, lay them down, and that would be it. And so this might be your idea of Palm Sunday. You might have, like, this, like, cuddly Jesus, like, coming into town on a donkey with these, like, palm branches waving around, and, like, that's what it means, like, Palm Sunday. I hope to, like, explode this idea of Palm Sunday in your mind. This isn't a story of this, like, cuddly Jesus coming into town and being like, hey, have your little branches and wave them around like you just don't care and and shout Hosanna, okay? That's not what's happening here. There's actually a lot of emotion, a lot of tension that is going on uh, in here. And so I want to—I just want to be— Sometimes when we read the Bible, like you might be like sitting down in the morning having your devotions or whatever and you read and you might pick up this passage and you just read through it and you're like, oh, this is great. There's like a donkey and, you know, you might like go to Zechariah 9-9, all that kind of stuff. And sometimes we just read the text and we just read text, okay? I want to help you hear this. Sometimes you need to feel the emotion of what is happening in the text. Like what is the environment that's going on here? Like who are these people like in in the crowd? Like what is going on? What's the context before and after? What is, what is happening here? And allow yourself to feel what would be happening in this, in this time period, in this age, in, in this scene. And as you feel that, you're going to be experiencing something as you walk through this text. And so hopefully we will uh, come to see that cuddly Jesus is not in this text this morning. So I want to show uh, who is in this crowd. And I want, to, I want to show the emotions and the tensions of who is in this crowd by, by showing you the longings of who is in this crowd. So when we, have, when we talk another way of looking at longings, like God has designed each human as a worshiper. Every single person on this planet is a worshiper. You either worship God or you worship something or someone. We are designed, it is in our DNA, to give worship, to give affection, to have longing for something. It is in human it's in, it's in us. It's instilled in each of us. And so when we look at, when we talk about affections, giving your affection to someone, a longing for something, is actually something that you will give your time, your resources to, your thoughts, it will consume your thoughts. That is uh, what we're talking about when we talk about worship. We're talking about what are you giving your affections to? What are you giving your desires to, your longings for? And so when we talk about that, we're going to talk about these three main groups that are in the crowd. The first group that's in this crowd is the Pharisees. So the Pharisees, we've learned a lot about them. They believe that they're serving God, but Jesus is exposing them uh, for what they are. They're, they're They're more about the religious activities and the traditions of men than they are about loving God with all of their hearts. And in fact, when Jesus talks about what they are offering to people, he says, listen, this is what you're doing. When you go before people, you are polishing the outside of the cup with all of your traditions. You're making the outside of your lives look really good, but the inside of your lives look like what? Rot and decay. It's broken. It's empty. What you you are offering people, when you actually train them up in the ways of your righteousness, you're actually making them twice the sons of hell as what you are. So these are some strong words to the Pharisees. So the Pharisees understand that their identity, their power, their prestige, their kind of control over people is through the religious activities and through the traditions of the day. That's where they get their voice into, into the community. So if their identity is this and Jesus is very clearly opposed to them, they want to silence him. If their identity is wrapped up in this religious system, And Jesus is wanting to put an end to their religious system. Their very identity is at exposure here. So Jesus, in actually accepting the praise of the people as king, as the promised Messiah, is actually forcing their hand to choose, what are you going to do with me? Either you're going to worship me or you're going to kill me. And actually from this moment, they are going to speed up their plan to kill Jesus. They're actually going to enact their plan to kill Jesus. They're going to speed that plan up. So that's, those are some people in the crowd. And then you have the zealots. We haven't talked much about them in Mark. They haven't come up too much. But Judas, uh, Judas the one who had betrayed Jesus, was a zealot. Now he is giving their affections to the cause of, rebe- of rebellion through force. So it, they believe that if we can change who the political power is, everything else will take care of itself. Rome is the one that is over us. We need to eliminate Rome by force. And even that would be even serving God to uh, lead a rebellion, a revolt against Rome. And if we lead that, then we will actually um, make everything right in the world. And so they are hoping and putting their affection that Jesus is this Davidic Messiah in the line of David, who actually will be a military conqueror, who will actually Uh, set up reign and rule in this day and age, that he will actually dispose of Rome as the oppressor, that he will set up his kingdom, and that will look like him having his rule and reign here. They are in the crowd. They're hoping that Jesus will set that up now. And then there's this third group. There are these people who have been experiencing Jesus, who have been healed by Jesus, who have seen Jesus' miracles, who have seen Jesus heal um, uh, people from all, all diseases that were uh, incurable. They've seen, uh, they've ate the bread uh, that he uh, distributed to the multitudes. They believe that he is the bread of life, that he is the living water, that he is offering a new way of life and he is, he is the Messiah. And they are crying out here as well. There is also, you could say there's a fourth group, the Romans. We don't often talk about the, the Romans in this, in this time period, but think about this. This is Passover week. The city is swelling. There's hundreds of thousands of people in Jerusalem, wall to wall, it's crowded, and there's more Roman soldiers now put on there. So they, they, if they need to stop a revolt, they can stop that. But they're also putting their hope in that they believe that they're above others and that they have the answers and that you take the world by strength and power. And so we get honest with ourselves this morning. We might find and see ourselves in this crowd, that we may be one of these people, one of these groups of people. Like it isn't uncommon for us to think that, you know, if we just change who is in political power and we actually had a person who thought like us and believed like us, like everything right would be right in the world. It wouldn't be uncommon for us to think that, you know what, we actually have all the answers, kind of like the Romans, and we kind of look down on other people, and we're critical of other people and judgmental of other people, and like we actually are, are kind of the way we know how to do things. It wouldn't be uncommon for us to even be the, the people that would say, like the Pharisees of, you know what, like I have, I kind of, I'm a good person. I've kind of, I do a lot of good things. Like God's going to look at me and he's going to say, man, you did, you, you did a little, you're more good than you did bad. And you're, that's how God's going to accept you is through the things that you do. But you might be the third person that comes to Jesus and says, have mercy on me. And you're crying out for salvation. So behind the giving of affection is expectation. If we label something a need and we have expectation of something, and that is not meant, it leads to resistant, resentment. So this happens in marriage all the time. It happens, you send a text, even, even if a friend, like you send a text to a friend and they don't respond back. and You're like, huh, that's weird. They didn't text me back. And then you get all resentful. They didn't text you back or you not enough time and all that kind of stuff. So expectation can lead to hidden resentment, which can lead to anger and all those things. This is why you could have some people in this crowd who expected to Jesus to be one way. And on this day, they're crying out, Hosanna in the highest. You are blessed and you come in the name of David. And then in a couple of days, they're going to scream out even louder, crucify him. So when we, when we come to Jesus expecting him to do what we think he should do, and he doesn't, it can lead to resentment. So what's happening here? What's, what's the backdrop of what's happening here? Why is Jesus riding in on a donkey? Why, wh- what, is, what is going on here? The type of display we're seeing Jesus riding in on is actually of a triumphal entry. He is riding into town and what you would see royalty do in this time. This is a common thing that you would see. And particularly with Rome, you would see this quite often. Rome would always, every, after every battle of every conquer, and they were doing this all over the place, they would have kind of a triumphal entry, a, a parade of sorts uh, to display their power. And let me, let me show you this image um, from around this time period. This was uh, after one of the Roman conquests. This is typically what they would do. They would have uh, the general, whoever conquered the people, they would have them on their golden chariot and they would go with a white horse and they're displaying what the, the whole thing is set up to display their power saying, our God is superior to your God's. And so they're, they're trying to display dominance. They're trying to display power and strength. And so one of the ways that they're doing that, you can see in this image, is some people have their hands bound together and they're actually mocking um, people that uh, were their kings and were their rulers. They're now parading them in front of them and saying they have no power anymore. And so what they would do is actually take the prisoners and the people that they conquered, the generals and the high, high-ranking officials, those type of things, and they would actually march them and parade them. And then they would end up in this, arena. And what they would do in the arena is they would actually set loose wild beasts and gladiators to destroy um, the, the opponents. And so they would set up their rule and reign in this place. There's actually, Jews would actually be familiar with this, and they would also be crying out for something like this, because in the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there was a family, the Maccabeans, who led a revolt and they revolted against. And then when they conquered, uh, they actually had a triumphal entry that looked much like what Jesus was displaying here. So in contrast, let's look at, look, look at this. This kingdom that Jesus is riding in on is not the kingdom of the zealot or the sword. What he, is, what he is announcing is not the way of the Romans, is not the way of revolt. I mean, think about how many times that Jesus has told people um, throughout the book of Mark, he does a healing, uh, he heals the blind, uh, the lepers, all those sort of things. And then what does he tell the people that he healed? Don't go tell others about me. And we're always like, why is he doing that? Why does he say that? Well, here's why I believe that Jesus is saying that. He is not going to give other people the opportunity to define who they think he is or should be. Jesus is going to define that for himself. See, many of the people had an expectation that Jesus was going to come in and he was going to destroy Rome and they were going to set up the kingdom there. So Jesus is saying it's not by the sword that we're going to do this. Live by the sword, die by the sword, and that will come up in the, in the garden. You have this idea that Jesus is going to be the one who defines him. So what is the kingdom that he is defining? Who is he saying he's going to be? Let's look at verse 2 and just see what, how, how he's writing in, what that is like. Look at verse 2. It tells his disciples, go into the village. Immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt there. The word colt there is the word polos, which means... It could be a small horse or a donkey, most likely a donkey, because it was more prevalent during that time. And so while they're there, he says, now bring, it to one, bring me the one which no one yet has ever sat. Now, what is, what is going on there? This is an interesting detail. When I, when I was studying this, I just put a question mark by that. Why does Mark give us this, um, this detail of, give us a donkey that no one has ever sat on? Has, now we're all like kind of like city slickers like I didn't grow up around horses or like donkeys and ride ride around my farm on that right but there's some of you who grew up in this area and had that exposure thing if you have done that if you have tried to ride an animal who has never been ridden before what's going to happen to you yeah you're not going to last very long right they're going to buck they're going to fight against being ridden they have to be broken right what I think Jesus is doing in this, in this detail, in this, is I think he is showing that he, again, once again, has authority over creation. But not just that. When you look at Isaiah and when you look at Revelation, the kingdom that Jesus, that one day is going to happen, is that the lion and the lamb are going to do what? Lie down together. Jesus is showing that one day, there is going to be this new way of living and operating with creation. And he is even demonstrating that here in this, in this little scene. There's so much more we could talk about that, of what Isaiah talks about, or what Revelation talks about, but I want to stick to the main point. See, so Jesus has proved that he has power over uh, creation. He has power over illness. He's cast out demons. He has authority to do so. He teaches with authority. But how does he ride in? How does he ride into town? On a white horse in a golden chariot? No, he rides in as a humble king on a donkey. He is setting up this distinction that I am like no king that you have ever heard about or ever experienced. I am distinct from any, anybody that you have ever, ever seen in this position. So another thing that Jesus is doing, now this is so interesting, Jesus is riding in, like your Bible's probably in the header, say triumphal entry, correct? Jesus hasn't faced a battle. He hasn't won the battle yet. And he's already riding into town in victory. Isn't that fascinating? Jesus is going to conquer death, which is the greatest enemy of all. There, people are thinking that, that, that Rome is their greatest enemy. No, Jesus is saying the, your greatest enemy is death, and I'm going to conquer it. But he's riding into town as if he has already conquered it. In riding into town, he fulfills the prophecy of Zechariah 9:9. 9, 9. So, if you want to turn in your Bible to so Zechariah 9:9, 9, 9, you'll see that Jesus is fulfilling this prophecy from the Old Testament. So in riding in writing in town, in the way that he does, he is saying what has been planned from before time, God is orchestrating and bringing into accordance right now, currently. So Zechariah nine. let me read it for you. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey even on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. See, this was planned. God orchestrated it and accomplishes his plan. And In so doing, he accomplishes two direct, purposeful things. He is declaring himself to be the king who has come. He is declaring himself to be the king who has come. That's one. And then the second, where does he ride? When we look at the text, like after the shouting, after he rides, where does he end up? He ends up in the temple. And in so doing, he says, this is my house. And he is saying, I am ending this uh, sacrificial system. I am the new sacrificial system. And on Good Friday, when we actually will remember and in in our minds celebrate um, what happened on the cross, Jesus is saying, he is the lamb of God. He is the Passover lamb who has been killed for us, ending all sacrifices. He is the sacrifice. So Jesus is calling us to see the distinction of what he is doing and how he is different than what they are expecting. They are expecting him to pick up the sword and lead a revolt. And Jesus says, no, my kingdom will come through what? Suffering and death. My death. My death. We were made to look for a king. And deep down, we know that we can't control everything. We know that we don't have everything in order. We need a king to come in and put things in order. So part of the Passover uh, festivities, what they would do, they would be uh, reciting psalms on their way up to Jerusalem. And they, when they would be reciting psalms and, and songs that they would be reflecting of their hopes and their desires. So one, one such one is Psalm 118, which we see in our text as well. So Psalm 118, verses 24 through 26, says this, This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. So now you know where that song came from. O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Okay, so this is where they are getting the word Hosanna. Hosanna comes from two different Hebrew words. Hoshiah, which means save or deliver, and na, which means please. It's an emphatic please. Do this now with emphasis. So Hosanna means please save now. Please deliver now. Please rescue now. So when they are shouting this, this isn't, again, this isn't some children's lesson. They're like, oh, Hosanna, oh, Hosanna. Like they are pleading with Jesus, to rescue them now, to save them now, to be their deliverer. This is not this, uh, just this calm, stoic presence. This is with passion that they are shouting out, rescue us, save us, Hosanna, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, Hosanna can be a prayer and it can also be a praise. So it would be like this. If I am in water and I'm drowning and I am crying out for someone to rescue me, I am gonna shout out, Hosanna, please save now. Not future tense, not later on. Please save now, rescue now. Now it also can be a praise in the sense that the rescue boat comes and they throw over a life raft and I actually am rescued and I say, oh, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Because what we're praying here is we're praying, would you be the rescuer? Would you deliver us? And then it's also a praise of saying, we believe you are the one who has brought rescue, the one who brings salvation, the one who restores. So it is a prayer and a praise that they are doing this. As I was preparing this message, I hope that this message will actually disrupt your life in the way that it would have disrupted their lives. You see, Jesus, isn't this warm, fuzzy, cuddly Jesus coming into town with some nice worship songs? He is actually changing everything. He is going to go to their temple, and what does he say about the temple? I am the temple. You destroy the temple, and three days later, I'll rebuild it and everyone's puzzled by that. So what they have known their entire lives of the sacrificial system of not being able to feel close to God in the sense that they they can talk to God, like what we take for granted, like we're just singing worship songs, like we can just come to God, we can pray, and God hears us, like we have this assurance that he hears us because we're his and because of what Jesus has done. They did not have that. So when the temple and and the Holy of Holies, when it was cut and changed, it changed everything. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the new temple system. He is the sacrifice. He is the way, the truth, of the life. And those who come after him will receive it. So when he sets himself up, when we see him as a king, it actually should change our entire lives. See, when it's really easy for us to have a cultural Christianity when we don't see Jesus as the Messiah King who actually demands a response of a whole life. But Jesus, because he is going to willingly give his whole life to us, he is actually demanding back, give your life to me. This is the whole idea of what Jesus has been talking about. Deny yourself and you will have life. A man who loses his life will actually find life. When we actually give up our lives and find our life in him, we actually have life. Because Jesus is not, uh, people, when they talk about like God demands worship and he demands praise, the reason why God demands praise and the reason why God is a jealous God, when we see that in the Old Testament, it's the same in the New Testament. The reason why he is a jealous God is God knows who he is and he knows what the life that he is bringing and he knows if you go outside of him to look for life, you will not find life. That is why he demands your praise. That is why he says, give me your life and find your life hidden in me. He is not saying that to be egotistical or arrogant. He is actually saying, I actually know what is best for you, my child. So come to me and find life. So when Jesus demands our lives, he actually changes all of it when we actually see him as king. So we've been seeing Jesus talk about bringing the kingdom and being hand over to suffer and die. But what does this mean for Jesus to be our true king? This is the great cost of following Jesus. This isn't a a path that's easy. It's actually a path that Jesus lays out that says, you cannot do this on your own. And in fact, in John 14 through 16, he tells us that he gives us the Holy Spirit because we cannot do it on our own. So the Spirit will not just uh, live outside of us, it will live in us. Most religions treat um, God or trying to earn their way to God as a transaction. Like, I do this amount for God, and then the God will owe me. That's like a transactional relationship. Sometimes uh, we come into this and we have a misunderstanding of the gospel and we kind of treat the gospel that way. This is not the gospel of Jesus. It's not the kingdom of Jesus. Jesus is not saying, hey, be good enough for me. And then, hey, if you do enough good works and you go to church and you give enough and you do all these good things, then maybe I'll let you in my kingdom. That's not the gospel. That's not the good news. What the good news is, is that Jesus is saying, I actually am going to do everything that's required of you to have a relationship with God, to be reconciled with God. And I'm going to do that on your behalf instead of you. So when you have faith in me, it is actually me as the sacrificial lamb of God slain for you that covers you. My righteousness, my life for you is actually going to cover you. And when God sees you, he sees me. So if you're inside me, you are actually in Christ. And when God sees you, you actually have a relationship with God. So what is the gospel? We get God. Plain and simple. We get access to the God, the creator, the living God, the true God. We get access to him, not because of our righteousness, but because of Christ. So when Jesus comes into town, he is actually demanding worship. His kingdom is not based on what we have done, but what he is going to do on our behalf. that he has won the battle for us. And he is asking us, how are you going to respond to me? Are you going to crown me or are you going to kill me? Those are the options he gives the audience. And so this morning, I think the thing that Jesus is clearly calling us is who do you say I am? Because I am distinct from all other kings. And he has given himself fully for us. So what would it mean for us to give ourselves fully to him? When Jesus is the king of our lives, we live, move, and have our being in him. The values of his kingdom actually become our values. Living with Jesus as king will at times present a stark distinction from the world around us. This distinction of us as followers of Jesus, the true king, will actually create opportunities to point them to true life. So our distinction from the world is not to say, hey, we're better than you world. It is actually to say our distinction from the world of why we don't do certain things and do certain things is actually to point other people to true life. So I want to point this out. What does this look like? I want us to reimagine what would it look like if Jesus was king in certain areas of our lives. What would it look like if Jesus had kingship of right rule and reign in certain areas of our lives? So think about um, places that are key, places in our lives. Let's talk about finances. If Jesus was king of our finances, if Jesus was king of our finances, we realize that he is the owner and the creator of everything. The offerings of this world are temporary. Our identity isn't stemmed in what we own, it is in him. So we don't have to keep up with the Joneses. Sorry, JJ. We give because he has first given to us. Because he has so generously given all of his life to us, we can be so generous back. We live in our means. We fight debt courageously because we do not want to be in bondage. We actually want to experience freedom. We want to be free to give to kingdom endeavors. We want to be free to give to those in need. We want to be free, and so that is why we would set a budget and attack debt and be free to give generously to the works of the kingdom, what Kim, Tim talked about today. So what would it look like to be, have Jesus as king of our marriage? When Jesus is king of your marriage, you realize your spouse was given to you as a gift. That marriage is one of the best vehicles to point ourselves to Christ because we realize that we cannot do it on our own. The way that God calls us to love our spouse is impossible to love in our own strength. Jesus shows this in Ephesians. He says, I want to, I'm the bride of Christ. I am, I am going to give my life for you and so do that with your spouse. Impossible to do on your own. But Jesus calls us to say, what would it look like if you actually believe that your spouse was a gift from me to actually bring you closer to me and be more dependent on me? What if you started looking at your marriage as starting to look as, as a priority, to, to be able to set time where you actually were able to look each other in the eye and actually have a conversation without being interrupted? What would it look like for you to actually say, this this relationship has priority because this is the person that God has given me to serve and to love and to be able to grow together. And in so doing so, you are saying, God, there is no thing in our marriage that is too big for you to handle. We don't give up because something's hard. We actually say, God, I actually entrust my marriage to you and I'm willing to step in and do the good hard work because I believe that you are for our marriage. I believe that you can restore things. And I am going to open myself up to actually forgiveness, even in places where I feel like I'm justified and entitled to hold on to things. That would be what it would look like to start having Jesus as king of your marriage. What would it look like to have Jesus as king in your parenting? As we see the faithful king explain the scriptures to us, we actually see that we are entrusted in the same way to show the scriptures to our children. We actually become a voice of truth where we actually become guides to show them where they can find life. We actually begin to tell our children that their worth, their value, and their identity is not based on how they look, their athletic performance, or what grades they get in school. It isn't based on how many likes they get on Instagram, how many followers they have in certain social media. We actually begin to speak truth of identity and value and worth into our kids. And we actually get to be people that are stewarding God's truth into our kids daily. That is your responsibility if Jesus is king in your parenting. What would it look like if Jesus is king in your workplace? Work actually becomes a place where we actually see that in the beginning there was a garden that needed to be cultivated. And in the end, there's actually a city that still needs to be built. And we get to be part of redeeming work, of bringing about cultivation in our workforce. So no matter what field of industry you're in, you actually get to be part of doing God's redeeming work of bringing new life and new restoration and new hope in those areas. And as you do that, as you begin to work diligently in those things because you care, because you realize God has put you in that place for a purpose and surrounded you with people on purpose, you actually get to be a vehicle of light and blessing to those as you begin to serve your coworkers. That is what it means to be Jesus, to be king of your workplace. Now, these aren't exhaustive lists. These are just ideas to get them jump-started. Because I believe when Jesus becomes king of our lives, it doesn't just get a, a Sunday, or it doesn't just get some religious activity, or we say a prayer before we eat a meal. He actually demands our entire lives. And he has the right to do so because he has given us his entire life. So Jesus as king is not just this warm, fuzzy, like, ooh, just say a couple of worship songs and like ride in time. No, this is, if you declare Jesus as king, you are actually declaring he actually has right reign and rule over my life. My life is not my own anymore. It is actually my king's. It's a very hard thing to do. And actually Jesus understands that it's hard. and he, That's why he gives us the Holy Spirit to empower us to make these decisions. So when we start talking about this, we serve a distinct king who makes our lives distinct for the world around us. So when Rob and I were talking uh, recently, we've been, we've been talking over the past uh, two years about this idea of like how do we shift culture in our church? Because one thing that we've noticed is that um, there's not a lot of conversions happening in our church where we're going out and we're sharing the gospel and people are coming to faith. And that honestly, like that is something we want to change. We want God to change that in our church, in our culture. So one of the things we started doing is form this outreach team. That's gonna We're talking about where in our community can we be a blessing? Where in our community can we give back? We want to be a redemptive a force in our community where we're an outpost in our community saying, hey, here's where you can find life. And we want to be part of serving and giving our lives away in our community. But the other part of that is we want to be vessels of a redemptive outpost in our community. What is the church? If you were to define the church as quite simply, it is a group of a gathering of redeemed people who have been declared free and righteous in Christ. And we are children of God that now get to proclaim and herald the good news of the king and the kingdom to our city. So the church is a group of redeemed people that gather together to worship the king who we've been set free by, and we've also been sent out by the king on mission. So when we're talking about this, we started uh, this initiative, the the Love Your Neighbor uh, Campaign. So This is the image that we put up. This is about a month and a half ago we were talking about. We want to start a fund where we can begin doing initiatives where we as a church begin to bless our city and point people to the king and the hope of the gospel in our city. And so we asked you guys to give to this with the first initiative going to camp in the city. And so we asked you guys to give, and you guys responded generously and gave $10,000 to this fund, the first initial fund we did. And so what we wanted to do is we said, okay, we have Pine Cove coming up, Pine Cove Day Camp coming up, and we want to be able to scholarship kids who live in our neighborhoods, who coworkers, um, friends and family who don't know Jesus. And we want to be able to scholarship them at such a rate where they would not be able to have money be an issue to come to camp and hear the good news of Jesus. So this is, what, this is what we decided to do. So we're, we are um, going to do this. We're, we're dreaming about what would it look like to have your kids reach out to kids that they know that don't know Jesus and invite them to this incredible week of camp where they're going to have the time of their lives, but they're going to hear the gospel clearly presented at it. What would happen if some of those kids came to faith? How would that change those kids? But then how would it change their families? How would it change the legacies going forward of these families? A city is made of what? Families. So how does it, how does it begin to shape and change our city? So we, we began to think about that. And so what we've done is we created an invitation. Now we're taking the scholarship money that you guys have given into the Love Your Neighbor Fund. And we have created this invitation. This is the front of the invitation. And on the back, it just has the details of when the camp is and where it is. And for the, the price, for them, it's $75, regularly $260. And then it gives them details. And then to email Connie for the scholarship fund. So here's what we are asking you to do. Whether you have kids at home, whether you don't have kids at home, whether you're a grandparent, whatever, wherever whatever age you are, we are in asking you to prayerfully consider, do you know a child that fits from kindergarten to, to fifth grade that actually, um, that doesn't know Jesus? This isn't about like, oh, hey, I know that that kid knows Jesus, and like, hey, I really want him to experience our church, so I'm going to invite him to this. No, these are like people that don't know Jesus, don't have, a, they, they don't have the, the hope of the gospel. And so we want you to prayerfully consider who do we need to invite as a family, as an individual? Who do we need to invite to come to this camp. So parents, what a great opportunity for you to sit down with your kids this week and to, take, and to take this invitation and to sit down with them and say, hey, listen, so we've got this Pine Cove camp coming up and we're, we know you're pumped to go. We know that you, you're just like ecstatic and you know, you know what it's like and you know and just talk about the hope that we have in Jesus and the good news of the gospel. But then to lead them, do you know any kids in your class, on your soccer team, uh, in our neighborhood, that don't know Jesus, that don't have a relationship with Jesus? And they might be able to come up with one or two. And you say, well, here's here's what we want to do. Let's pray that God would um, tell us who he wants us to invite to this camp. And then as a family, you, you get to interact around that. And then you take the invitation, it's in an envelope, and you write that child's name on the front and have, walk with, if you want to walk with your kid to do it or you have your kid uh, hand deliver that and invite them to camp to hear the good news of Jesus. So this is an opportunity for us as parents to lead the way of what evangelism looks like, for what it looks like to do that. Now, if you don't have kids, I want you to consider taking an invitation and thinking about who is it that I know that needs to be invited into this, that this could, this could radically change their kid's life and radically change their family's life. This is the, this is the kind of thing that we want to begin doing as a church. So if you want to pick up an invitation, don't pick up like 20 and then don't, you know, do anything with them. We want you to prayerfully consider this. And the invitations, Liam Buck will have them uh, at the assisted check-in on your way out on the left. And we want you to perfectly consider, God, who is it that you want us to invite? And if you have kids, this becomes an opportunity where you get to start showing them what it means to spread the good news. It's an opportunity to do this. And so this invitation will be one of those ways that we can do that. So as we close, I want us to consider this morning how disruptive this message of the triumphal entry was in their context. Jesus is demanding worship. He's demanding them to choose. Who do you say I am? And so this morning, I don't know, I don't know where, where you are in your faith with Jesus, but what would it look like for you to respond to this king with your whole life? And maybe it's just taking one of those areas that we talked about. Maybe it's an area that, you're, it, that we didn't talk about this morning. What would it look like for Jesus to be king of that area of your life? And then how would that shift in your life? Would you stand with me? I want to close us this morning with reading a prayer together in a posture of being open to the king of kings doing a work in our life. So would you read this prayer with me out loud? God, by your spirit at work within me, would you help me humbly submit to Jesus in every area of my life? Would you give me eyes to see Jesus clearly? Would you so open my heart to absorb your great love for me? I desire to grow daily in the process of being aware of you and my need for you in all of life, that I would be a faithful witness to your faithfulness, and proclaim that life is only found in you. Amen. So this Friday, I want to implore you, church, to come back for our Good Friday services. This is such a great opportunity if you have kids of uh, first or fifth grade, to bring them in into service, experientially experience the cross um, and, and what that means. And it is, it is one of our favorite services of the year. Uh, can't you enough, 4.30 and 6.30. I hope to see you then. And then next Sunday we'll be joined as we celebrate Resurrection Sunday of our resurrected King, Messiah Jesus. Amen. Amen. We'll see you next week.